Hello, welcome to The Lore You Know, a show where we chat with some amazing human beings who are storytellers, collectors, and folklorists as we discuss the history of, inspiration behind, and importance of recording and sharing regional tales. And I have with me today the amazing Ron Murphy. Ron, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me here. You know, I've, I've been a fan of your show. I, I've, I've been watching it uh, and, and really admiring all the guests that you bring on and all the tantalizing questions you present. And I thought, you know what this show needs? This show needs some Ron Murphy. And so finally, finally, you asked me to be here. And I'm very, very flattered and honored. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I am too. I am too. You know, you guys over at Small Town Monsters, and I'm not just blowing smoke here. You're some of my favorite people in the world. So I'm really happy to be around you guys any chance I get. Yes, yes. Thank you. Yeah, you've been around. I mean, you were in American Werewolves. Mm -hmm. um, you were on Sasquatch on Earth, uh, mm -hmm. The Ridge. That's right. And um, actually, which that will come back around to something that's not uh, out yet, but Phantom Lights that's coming. And you right. also uh, are going to be having a book through STM Publishing. All of this has been announced. What more can I ask for? You know, what more can I ask for? That's right. So, you know, the, the Phantom Lights was, you know, a really a labor of love. And it came to fruition by our experiences on episode two of Sasquatch Uncovered the Ridge, which was Spectral Bigfoot. And really, um, it's, it's interesting to chart because we have it documented within the small town monster kind of, uh, 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 you know, uh, the umbrella of that. So it's really cool to see that I could be able to write a book about my experiences and try to connect the dots as best that I can. So I'm looking forward to all this stuff coming together. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's definitely been pretty awesome. And that that moment, which we'll get into it in a little bit later, but that was pretty pretty awesome uh experience that we had on the ridge there um but before we get into individual experiences and stuff um i wanted to ask just have you kind of explain who you are and how you got into this community to begin with sure yeah so um yeah my name is ron murphy and i actually uh grew up in western pennsylvania so i've been here uh, the majority of my life um and i i've since a a, a wee lad um, I've had the uh, the Chestnut Ridge, uh, you know, somewhere in my backyard. Right now, if I look out my bedroom window, I can see the Chestnut Ridge. And actually, I live on the corner of Chestnut and Ridge. How about that? So uh, I've always been around this place. And uh, so growing up, I was a child of the 1970s. And Stan Gordon uh, would appear on the radio uh, about one time a month out of Pittsburgh. And he would talk about ufo sightings and he would talk about bigfoot encounters and uh these were happening around my little town right nothing ever happened in my little town it had two street lights and uh there was nothing there so this was big as a kid you know this was this was awesome so my mom would load my brother and i up and we would do our own paranormal investigations looking for signs where a ufo might have landed or looking for bigfoot um, and of course we never found anything but this was uh, a great time to be alive you know everything was possible and as my love for things that go bump in the night grew um we had to go to places called the library where you and this was actually kind <laughs> of like tracking down a cryptid 
because you would have to go into this place and go down labyrinths of, of, of uh, uh, bookshelves and find the card catalog. And then you would open that up. <laughs> and none of these numbers made sense or anything, mind you. But if you hit the right cards, then those become the footprints that you follow to find your book on Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. So, you know, reading books as a kid, watching television shows like In Search Of, you know, all this stuff was awesome. And then, um, and I know, Heather, look, you're going to find this hard to believe. And what I'm telling you is gospel truth. But um, whenever I got to high school, and this was in the 1980s, right? Uh, so whenever I got to high school, um, women in high school, these girls that were, were you know, right on the edge of, of, of womanhood, they did not find guys that were interested in Bigfoot to be worth dating. Can you, I cannot believe that. So it's wild. To, I, I find it hard to believe. So my little, you know, uh, kind of affair that I was having with Bigfoot and vampires and werewolves and all this kind of stuff had to take a back seat, right? Because now I had to learn about socialization and everything, and I had to kind of find myself. But keep in mind, I've always been kind of dorky my whole life. So even though I wasn't admitting that I was liking Bigfoot, I was still kind of dorky. But anywho, so after that horrible, horrible John Hughes career of me trying to fit in high school and finally getting through high school, then I finally move out of my small town and I go to the University of Pittsburgh. And I'm sitting there in class and I'm taking an anthropology class. And there is a chapter in our anthropology book. And this is a real book, mind you know. This is before Amazon.com. So somebody had to write this and somebody had to review it and then they had to publish it, right? And I paid like a hundred bucks for the book. So you know what's good. Um, so oh, in, yeah. in one of these chapters in the book, one of the professors that wrote it suggested that our legends of Bigfoot and the Abominable Snowman may have dated to historical sightings of the Gigantopithecus. So we have now in a college textbook, somebody talking about the possibilities that these ideas, these archetypes of ape-like creatures could stem from a common source, you know, going back into the Pleistocene. I thought, well, this is absolutely amazing. And it was as if Bigfoot kind of walked into the classroom and said, now what do you want to do with me? Because ever since, you know, as a kid, it was a, it was, it was a fascination, right? It was kind of a hobby. But now as, I, as I'm, you know, I'm in college and I'm thinking about this stuff, I thought, well, why don't we look at it through an academic perspective? You know, let's look at it through a, the, the lens of, of, of academia. And of course, Grover Krantz was doing this at the time and um, uh, Jeff Meldrum was doing it. So it was like the only one doing it. But what I want to do in my career is kind of look at all these archetypes and kind of find out the source of where these things originate from and what they me meant to us in the past and why we still have them today, right? Why are we still talking about werewolves and, and Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monsters? Why are we talking about this in the, in the 21st century? Um, it's because they mean something to us. And, uh, you know, whether they're flesh and blood or interdimensional or what have you, um, they mean something to us and they are part of who we are as human beings. Yeah, absolutely. What did you major in when you were in college? So my undergraduate was in uh, religious studies because I wanted to become a priest at one time. 
true story. So it was religious studies and literature. So my 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 bachelor's okay. degree is in literature. And then I went to graduate school and I majored in history. Uh, but I also have a master's in um, in uh, strength-based counseling and also in um, early childhood development. Nice, nice. So you were in school for a while. I actually, I was, I, yeah. So I just finished up like my, my last uh, trip around the block in school about three years ago. So yeah, I, I, I try nice. to go back as much as humanly possible and, uh, yep. and uh, keep it going. So always a student. I get it. Absolutely. That's exactly right. It, it, it keeps me away from working. If I would have known this earlier, I would just have never left school. I would have just been a constant student. <laughs> Driving I around understand. the solving mysteries. <laughs> there you go. I like yep. it. Yeah. I like it. Oh, so one thing that you've done over the years is write books. Yeah. When did you write your first book and what was your first book? Uh, thank you very much for bringing up this very painful chapter in my life. So I wrote my first. <laughs> I, I wrote my first book whenever my, uh, you know, my wife left me. So so let, let, let's all gather together okay, here. Okay, let's. Now. Yeah. So, so I, you know, this was a tough time. You know, I so uh, I I was married and I had I have five kids and my 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 wife at the time thought that this is too much and then she left. So. I had this kind of void to fill in my life and I was feeling, you know, unsatisfied and unwanted and, and all these other kind of feelings and emotions that I had. So I thought, you know what I'll do? I've always been interested in writing and I've always been interested in these kind of, you know, these kind of um, marginalized interests like uh, Bigfoot and stuff. I thought, well, let me put all this together and see what happens. So I took all the research that I've ever done on the Chestnut Ridge, and my first book that I ever wrote was The Unexplained World of the Chestnut Ridge, A Hike Through Western Pennsylvania's Goblin Universe. So I put it all together, and um, I, uh, I, I got it published, and uh, it had a little modicum of success. I was on uh, Coast to Coast with it, and um, but it was hard. It's hard to write a book. Um, and it's hard to find time to write a book because all my kids at the time were little. And uh, my daughter, Willow, I, I remember this. She said, hey, Dad, uh, do you think mermaids exist? And I said, I, 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 I never thought about this. And she said she was sucking her thumb at the time. And she pulled her little thumb out of her mouth. And she goes, well, you write all that crap about Bigfoot. Maybe you should think about something else. <laughs> And uh, I thought, well, I will tell you what I'll do. I will, I will do some research for a couple days, and if I can bring enough information together, maybe I will try to write a book on mermaids. And it was fascinating because I thought maybe I would just write a very small book, but I was able to write like a sixty thousand word book on the history of mermaids. And I thought, well, you know what? If mermaids, you know, if that interests people, then what about? werewolves like where did they come from and where did vampires come from so this really set me on this trajectory to kind of examine all these great archetypes that make up the world of the paranormal yeah yeah um i i love that she like how about you look into something more worthwhile dad uh <laughs> yeah that's right that's right why aren't you talking about mermaids dad why she was the watching important the things that's right. She was watching the show called H2O. Have you ever seen it? I've I've not seen it, but I'm aware of it. it, it so it's on Netflix, right? So uh -huh. it's Australian, you know, they're teenage girls. So, of course, you know, our American girls are attracted to this because they're pretty. They're on the beach and all this kind of stuff. And um, yeah. she watched it 
in the summertime almost on loop like as soon as one season would end she would go right into the other season and she would continually watch it again and again <laughs> and um i think that it was kind of like an obsessive compulsive thing with her and um mm. but, uh, yeah I, I remember you know her sitting on my lap as we mm. were doing research together and writing it was a, it was it was great it was a great bonding experience but yeah i think that that is the thing um so many other you know, these cryptids are so maligned because they're not in the spotlight. You know, you think about Bigfoot, right? He always has the spotlight on him. But there's these other ones like yeah. mermaids. And I think mermaids is, is very um, uh, important to talk about because it, it's it's female, almost almost invariably female. And I think that that says something about the culture in which this cryptid appears and how it evolves, and sometimes even how it changes. I mean, at one time it was a very malicious creature, and now uh, it's, it, it, it sells you your coffee in the morning at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, <clears throat> so you mentioned the goblin universe. Yes. Can you explain what that is? for someone who's never heard of it before. Yeah, so, you know, this is a whole Mothman, John Kill type of stuff, right? So I didn't coin that or anything like that. But the Goblin Universe is basically a, a the, 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 the reality that exists within our reality, except it's hidden. Uh, I, so it's kind of like an onion. If you would take an onion and you would start peeling it apart, right? Each layer is kind of a different reality. And the Goblin universe is probably that whole onion. You know, each layer has a bit of that Goblin universe in it. And some theories are that it bleeds over or it intersects with our world or there's portals that open up. But my simple belief is this. I think that there are realities within realities and there are inhabitants within those realities and their world is very real, just like our world is very real. And whether it is something that, you know, we assimilate or we, we, we cross over or we merge or maybe even collide, whatever happens, we are now um, interacting with, with the denizens of that other world. Right. So there's yeah. moments where things kind of bleed over into one another and we can see That's them. right. That's right. Yeah. So like, you know, I, I do a lot of uh, uh, ghost hunting, right? I mean, that, that's uh, a very popular thing, especially around Halloween. So I'm always asked to do different tours and such. And um, uh, I was, you know, investigating one time. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to think that, you know, whenever we were in this room asking questions, what happens if you know the past you know the time is not you know linear I, I i am a firm believer that all times exist at the same time uh so you know what is the possibility that that we're in that room right now that somebody also is in that room from the 1800s and we are the ghosts to them right we're the ones that are right. whispering and we're the ones that are knocking and all that kind of stuff and i've heard things about bigfoot and the Loch Ness monster being time slips um and i'm not so sold on that because i like the idea that there's another reality and there's that kind of merge within that reality i think i think that that happens mm -hmm. i think that explains ghosts um i think that explains even extraterrestrials in some uh, aspects as well too because did you know and i assume that you do know because you're a pretty smart cookie there but did you know that there are a lot of ghost investigators that take pictures of of beings that look surprisingly like grays 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there was also this thing called the Skoll Experiment, S-C-O-L-E, and it took place mm-hmm. in, in England in the 1970s, and a group of people got together, and they were all specialists in their fields, you know, engineers, scientists, psychics, and things like that, and they thought maybe we could all come together and contact the other side. So they would gather around a table and they would try to think and project into another world. And then pretty soon, you know, Ouija board stuff starts happening. Some poltergeist activity happens, some knocks and things like that. Then soon enough, um, one of the entities presents itself and they have it on film and uh, it looks like a gray. I mean, it, it, it is utterly terrifying because we're seeing something that we usually associate with UFOs now in the right. realm of a ghostly investigation. And uh, mm-hmm. Robin Boy was one of the leaders of the, of the Skull Experiment. And I was able to talk to him a few years ago, right before he passed away. And he said that during one of the sessions, a very small UFO materialized and it went around each oh, member wow. sitting at the table almost of his, as if it was evaluating them before it disappeared. So I, I think that what we have here is such a bleed over uh, from these other realities that, you know, as, as paranormal investigators, we cannot simply focus on one thing. In order to do justice to the world of the paranormal, we have to take everything into consideration because not one thing just makes sense because you have to see how they're all interconnected and how they all intersect, and how, you know, you connect the dots to form an even grander picture. Yeah, exactly. When, so you mentioned ghost hunting and all of these experiments, but when was your first ghost hunt? Do you remember, like, where you went for your first experience of ghost hunting? Uh, so as far as, as ghosts go, okay, Yeah. I, I think, I think I was, like, actually in college, before I actually understood what what ghosts actually were, so I was very close to my yeah. grandmother. Very close to my grandmother. Again, another sad story. Sorry, but anyways, uh, so yeah. um, I was uh, you know in my apartment and I had roommates at the time, and I woke up and it was probably like three o'clock in the morning. And I laid in bed and I knew that something happened. Like I, it was one of those feelings where it was immediate dread, and I laid in my bed for a while. I laid in my bed for a while, and it was about 15 minutes later, the phone rang. I knew immediately it was for me, and one of my roommates picked it up, and I knew he was going to come to my door, and he said, hey, Ron, the, the phone's for you. And it was my mother telling me that my grandmother had passed away. Um, so I was not there for her, her passing or anything like that. And, um, you know, she grew up in the, you know, she was born in 1924. She had polio. She couldn't walk very well for most of her life. In the last several years of her life, she was confined to a wheelchair. So there was this 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 hurt in me that I was not there to actually say goodbye to her, right? Um, so I remember one day, that, then I had moved away from the apartment, and I was living on my own by this time. And uh, so it was only about a year later. And I remember lying in bed and just waking up, not like out of a start or anything like that, but just I knew that there was something in the room with me. And at the foot of my bed, it was my grandmother who was no longer confined to a wheelchair or anything like that. She was just simply standing up. And she said, you don't have to fear anything. You don't even have to fear death or anything like that because death is just like opening a door and entering another room. And at that, she completely, she didn't vanish. 
the morning sun was coming through the window and she simply became the light that was coming through my window. So those experiences and, and most of the experiences that I've, I've confronted later on um, in life, you know, almost 90% of all ghostly experiences are positive in my, in my opinion. It shows that there is something out there that goes on. It shows continuity and it shows that our loved ones never really leave us, right? So all these people that are out there hunting demons, they're doing a complete disservice to the idea of spirituality. I truly believe that. But um, I have been on some, you know, what you would call professional ghost hunts where I was getting paid to lead people through. Mm -hmm. a, I was at a place called Haunted Hillview Manor, which is in uh, Newcastle, Pennsylvania, an iconic place. And uh and uh, I pulled up to the to the facility. I was supposed to do a talk and then a ghost hunt probably about three or four hours later. But I pulled up a little bit early to get everything ready. And uh, a guy came out to my car and I said, are you Ron Murphy? And I said, yeah. And he said, the spirit box has been asking for you. So that's already kind of creepy. Mm -hmm. And I have my daughter Willow with me. The daughter you know, wanted to uh, me to write uh, uh, Mermaids, uh, the book on mermaids. And she was apprehensive about going in. Like she was immediately scared. So we do go inside. And uh, there's a chapel there. And one of the residents that used to live in this place because it used to be a nursing home, he liked mm -hmm. Johnny Cash. So over the spirit box, I walk the line comes on, you know, all these kind of really weird things that happen. And then it started calling my name and it wanted me to sit at the table where the spirit box was. And so I reluctantly got that because I'd never had these experiences before. And then it started to say my daughter's name, Willow. Okay. So nobody there knew who my daughter was or anything like that. So Willow comes up there. So in the complete darkness, because of course you have to have complete darkness when you're ghost hunting, but uh, in the complete <laughs> darkness, um, the spirit box starts going through this, I guess like an array of things. Like it's as if something is trying to gain a voice within the spirit box. And then um, my, my, my young son, uh, Ronan, who probably was only about five years old at the time, I could hear his voice coming through saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. So I was immediately shocked because whatever was going on, it, it kind of knew who I was, or at least it had some sort of it had some sort of knowledge about where I was and everything. Um, and so I started to get a little bit a little bit scared uh, until uh, this little child's voice came on the spirit box and said, uh, there's a door behind you. And we looked behind us and there was no door, but I saw that there was this kind of like this material over the wall. And I went up there and uh, sure enough, it, the door was covered up by this material. And uh, then it said it wanted to pass through. Bless you. It said it wanted Thank to pass you. through. Um, so um, I pulled the, uh, the, uh, the, um, the I, it was like some sort of tarping. So I pulled the tarping down and I opened the door but then the little kid voice on there said it was scared. It was afraid. And it wanted Willow to go. It wanted my daughter Willow to go. So I opened up the door and Willow said, I want no part of this, right? You know, hey, dad, you know, this, <laughs> yeah. is like, this is like child abuse, right? You know, CYS is coming out in the morning kind of thing, right? She goes, I don't want to do this. She said, no, you know, you're going to have to do this right now. We're kind of committed. So she um, she went through the, the door, right? She went through the door. And the little child's voice on the thing said, um, I love you. And everything just went off at one time. The electricity, the, uh, the the spirit box, the rum pods, everything just shut down completely. I had never experienced anything like that in my life. And it was, it yeah. was 
sobering. You know, this this was something because I do feel strongly that we we interacted with something that was was scared about being stranded uh, between two different realities. And I think in a way we were able to help it move on that night. Yeah. Yeah. And that's wow. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. And uh, did you have uh, like CPS called on you the next day? Did Willow turn you (laughs) in? No, no. I will tell you this. I will tell you this. So it was being filmed. And I I think that you can find this on YouTube someplace. I'm not sure exactly where, because there was a film crew there that was out of Chicago. And they're the ones that brought all the equipment and everything like that. So I think it's available someplace. Uh, but there was a newspaper there as well, too. And they took a picture and put my daughter's picture on the front page of our of our town paper. And whenever she found out about that, as soon as she got off of school, she went to every place that her friends went to. And she turned the paper over so they couldn't see her face. Because she wanted no part She wasn't of ready her. for that. She was not ready for this. So she'll do things with me out of state. But very rarely will she do things locally because she doesn't want to be associated with that guy, right? Right, right. Yeah, Got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where's yeah. your favorite place out of state that you've gone for investigating? Oh my goodness, Saint Augustine is. Have you been to Saint Augustine? I have not. Oh no. my goodness, yeah, that's one of my favorite places, and of course. Rhode Island. So I was able to visit uh, the grave of Mercy Brown over the summertime. You know, a great vampire story. And if it ever happens, maybe we'll do something on Small Town Monsters about it. But that's up to the viewers to start writing in and say, we want Ron Murphy to do some sort of introspective on vampires. But but these kind of places where where they're out of the ordinary, right? Like, like our, people go to New England all the time, but they aren't realizing that, like, right around the corner, there is some great pieces of history, not even paranormal history, you know, great pieces of history. There was a young girl that died. And she was uh, she was exhumed from the grave. Her father cut out her heart, uh, burned it into ash, and made her brother drink it because she he assumed that his daughter was a vampire. And this happened in 1892. This isn't like 16, 1700 stuff. This stuff, you know, professional baseball was being played at this time. So I'm I'm so um, uh, like as an historian, putting this all into into uh, context, you know, I'm amazed that people were still looking for vampires in New England. You know, uh, an hour away from Harvard University, people were still looking for vampires almost into the 1900s, almost into the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that is a crazy story. I've been to her grave. I haven't been to St. Augustine, but I have been to Mercy Brown's grave. Uh, and, the and then people still leave trinkets. They do. They Oh, so that's the other thing, too. So here in uh, Western Pennsylvania, but now this is going into a little bit of the uh, Northern Pennsylvania, we have the, the, the grave of the two children of the Alleghenies. Have you ever heard this story? Are these the lost children? The lost children, absolutely right. And that's yeah. the same thing. That is the same thing. It's, it's very creepy there. Um, uh, the graves are actually covered and protected, but people still leave teddy bears. I'm not sure why they leave money, however. I, I don't know what a ghost will do with money, but they leave money all the time. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, that's a, that's a common thing. Yeah, like yeah. Go, it's like you're visiting the grave of a stripper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't, I doubt that that's what they're thinking, but I mean, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> that's right. 
That's right. You know, of course, money is associated with putting the coins over the eyes to pay the ferryman and stuff like that. So it probably has its mm -hmm. derivation from that. But the dollar bill thing just doesn't make you any know. sense to me at all. Yeah. Correct. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, can you go into the story of the lost children of the Alleghenies? I can. You know what, Kenton? This would also make a pretty cool small town monster show as well, too. But I'll just go into it a little bit, okay? So these people <laughs> yeah. So these two little children are playing uh, at their – now, now, this is in the 1700s, right? So this is – Western Pennsylvania at that time was still the frontier, right? We have bear at that time, mountain lion, wolves, very, very scary place. So there was this very isolated cabin in the middle of nowhere, and two little children were playing out front. And uh, lo and behold, their mother discovers that they're missing, so she assumes that they're with a the dad. The dad come, comes back home, and no, I, I have no idea where the children are. So they begin a frantic search. They can't find anything. So then they have to go to the next town, which is hours away. But needless to say, they gather about 300 people who go looking over this hill, which the family lived on a hill, which wasn't very large, maybe, you know, maybe a few hundred acres. I mean, we're not talking about a lot. So 300 people looking with torches and everything covering that place. And in the, in the, this is actually in the spring as well, too. So we don't even have leaves on the trees yet. Uh, and they couldn't find anything, right? So so um, they, they now go a few hours away to Somerset County, and they find a witch, as it was called in the newspapers. But it, it probably pertains to a psychic. And she sees these children, you know, uh, uh, in the woods someplace. But after everything's said and done, she really does not have any clue about what's going on. But here, uh, a town person has a dream. He sees these two children. He sees them around a particular type of tree. Um, he sees a shoe in his dream. And he sees that uh, there's a dead deer carcass by where the shoe is. So he tells his brother. His brother then tells the family. And uh, the dad says, I think I, I think I know where this is at. So they go, they find the tree, they find the dead deer, they find the shoe, and they find the two young boys, right? They're, they're deceased. Now, the strange thing about this is, now, this was, I think, about two weeks later. Uh, the children were not predated by anything. Uh, there was no, uh, uh, you know, decay going on. No animals were, were at them or anything like that. They were in pretty pristine shape. Which leads me to suspect, and this is just my two cents, is that the, the man who had this dream, I think that he knew a little bit too much about this. And the sad part is I think the children were abducted and then returned to that location from a different place after the murder had occurred. Um, I think this is probably one of the first cases in America where something this heinous, I mean, if this would happen nowadays, people would hardly even bat an eye because this stuff happens all the time. But I think that this is the first yeah. time, at least, like I said, in my research, that, that there was this kind of crime that went on and that and people just wouldn't question that nobody was doing this kind of stuff at that time. So nobody would question why this would happen. But it just seems too remarkable for this stuff to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you say the... <clears throat> there is a memorial or there is not there, a memorial, there's a memorial. yes ma'am yeah and of course uh allison krauss has uh, a haunting song uh about this uh and uh it's it's really hard to listen to but uh, yeah a true story uh, in the annals of uh american history where two little boys uh go missing and their bodies are later discovered by the uh from the dreams of uh, uh somebody who i think 
was the one that caused their deaths. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is quite a story. That would definitely be an interesting tale to tell. Visually. It would. Um, so you've grown up on the Ridge. Like you said, you've lived there your whole life. So my question, this might be a big question, but why do you think so many odd things happen on the Ridge? Like, yeah. what is it about the Ridge? That's a great question. So, um, could it be the geology, right? There's a lot of limestone up there. And we do know that limestone plays a major role in a lot of these kind of sightings around the world. It's, it's, just, a, it's just a fact. So is it something in the rock? Possibly. Um, is it something in the ridge itself? Because, you know, this is part of the Appalachian Plateau. These, these, these mountains around here are, are ancient, right? Uh, so, you know, is it something that was just there, you know? And I also have a theory as well, too, when we talk about ley lines, um, is it possible that these ridge systems are, are constructed, you know, rise up naturally over power sources within the Earth's crust? Um, because if you would follow the Appalachians, uh, they also go through the highlands of Scotland, too, right? And mm -hmm. all these places where these great mountains are, they have stories of the strange and bizarre, whether they be cryptids or fairies or UFOs or what have you. But there's something about mountains and there's something about, you know, elevation that uh, we are curious about. And, I, and I, I'm thinking now as a researcher that's been investigating this stuff for about 35 years, I'm starting to think that what we're dealing with here is a natural um, manifestation of the earth itself. Uh, because I think that these mountains are rising out of uh, energy centers, which is this natural. We, we talk about ley lines all the time when we deal with, you know, with, with Europe, because that's a big thing over there. And we know in Europe, the churches are built on ley lines. We know that, you know, pagan temples were built there as well, too. And then the churches put on the pagan temples and put churches up. But we do know that all this kind of stuff happens there. And we really don't know that much about America. We don't really like to, to, to look around. But I think that we do need to look around and see what is happening here in the United States as well, too, because we also have things like mound builder cultures, you know, uh, stepping out of the, the woodland cultures the uh, and the Native American Indians. We have like the Adena people that were building effigy mounds in the shape of a snake. You know, in Chillicothe, Ohio, it's a, a quarter of a mile long undulating uh, mound uh, out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but again, it's built on the side of a hill. And a lot of these 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 locations that are considered sacred are in mountains or in hills. I think it's just that at one time we were so connected to the earth that we knew where power resided. And that's why we were drawn to it. So is there um, similar similar stories and oddities that are happening around places like the Rockies as well then, even though it's a newer mountain chain? Oh, absolutely. And look at Alaska as well, too. So the idea of like uh, missing 411, right? Or is, that's right. Yeah. Missing, missing. No, missing 911. Missing. Yeah, it's 411. Yeah, that's. Yeah. OK. Missing 411. OK, great. So uh, so people tend to be knuckleheads. Right. So if I would go like hiking. I, 
the, the chance of me not returning is probably pretty high. If I go out in the middle of nowhere by myself, but like it happens all the time in mountains and things. So people were wondering, you know, did somebody trip and fall? Did they get lost? Did something eat them? What, what, whatever, whatever happened. But strange things happen in mountains. And then going back, like I said, I think it's because people tend to be knuckleheads. But the idea of cryptids being sighted in these areas. Alaska, you know, Alaska, or, you know, we have the, the Lichen Loop here in Pennsylvania, which is actually out towards the Appalachian Trail. And we have things yeah. like uh, um, uh, the uh, the Alaskan Triangle that has, uh, you know, sea monsters involved in that and lake monsters and all these other kind of cryptids as well as uh, uh, UFOs. But I think, yeah, I think there's something about mountains that is just um, the... Uh, the domain for the strange and the unexplained. Right. What <clears throat> on the ridge, all the different stories that you've come across. I mean, you've had, I'm sure people contact you with their personal experiences and so on. What is like, what's an, a really strange creature that you've heard of? Maybe something oh. that doesn't fit into the box of Bigfoot um, or a dog man or anything like that what is something really odd wait all right so this was this was somebody coming up to me at a conference and this was told to me about several years ago so um it was actually on the ridge and the ridge is 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 not like when we talk about mountains it's like not a huge mountain range and it's only about 75 miles long but um and it's not very high either about 3,000 feet it's as high as elevation so in the world of mountains this would be a mere little foothill right but it's it's ours so you know um it's a, it's, a, it's the largest thing around here so we'll take it but um there's there's a lot of hiking trails up there um so there was a gentleman that was hiking and he came to this little opening up on the ridge and in this opening he saw a movement and he saw these two little creatures that he said were frolicking with each other. He called them whenever he uh, he was talking to me. He called them brownies, and I think that's because okay. um, you know Harry Potter. You know, it became part of our vernacular, right? The idea of brownies and things like that. But he said they were two brownies. But whatever he saw, there was these two creatures that were kind of rustling with each other, and he couldn't remember if they were wearing clothes, but he said if they were wearing clothes, it so matched the environment that it was hard to differentiate, right? So he watched them for several moments, and then one of them caught his eye, and the creature um, disappeared into the side of the hill. And he was adamant about telling me there was no hole at the side of the hill. It just actually went into the into the into the hill itself and kind of was absorbed by it. And the other creature didn't run away, but it went through a series of shapeshifts, becoming like a dogman, becoming a Bigfoot. You know, going through these almost monstrous kind of identities uh, before it came upon the figure of a large bird and thunderbirds are often reported up on the chestnut ridge and then it flew off and connecting the dots if we look at places like um uh county clare in uh in ireland there are fairies over there that actually do the exact same thing shape shift into eagles shape shift into horses so we do know that within the uh within the, the, the mythology of fairy folklore, that the idea of shape-shifting is, is very pertinent into that. But that was the first time I ever heard that in relation to uh, the Chestnut Ridge area. Although we do know if we would go up to, uh, you know, the New England area and we go to uh, the Bridgewater Triangle, 
Uh, we know that the puck wedgie lives up there. And we also know that they are also shapeshifters. Right, right. And this comes back around to something that I've noticed a lot recently. Uh, the the talk of like the Fey realm is becoming more prevalent, I think, in cryptid circles, it seems like. It's not like uh, universally accepted or anything like that, but uh, it's something that I've seen more people talk about. The yeah. idea that they're connected, that Bigfoot is possibly part of the Fey realm. Right, right. Heather, pull yeah. up a chair. I'm going to, I'm going to divulge all my secrets. <laughs> Uncle Ron's going to tell you the secret. So, so as I have been researching, mm -hmm. the only thing that makes logical sense is that we are dealing with the world of the fate. I mean, I, I know that whenever I say that makes logical sense, that seems nonsensical. Uh, basically, because when we think of fairies, we immediately think of Tinkerbell. We think of what Disney has done to it. But when we think of the fae going back thousands of years, right? Because all cultures around the world have the idea of the other, the Fey. Then we start getting into deep, deep rabbit holes, right? Because a lot of times people that are abducted by the Fey or have interactions with the Fey see deceased people with these beings, right? As if they straddle the world between life and death. But when we get into some UFO reports, like Whitley Strieber said, whenever he was being abducted, he saw one of his friends who was recently deceased on one of the UFOs with these beings, right? So we have this idea also of things coming in at night and abducting you, right? And we have the idea of the changeling as well, too, in uh, the idea of what they call hybrids now. You know, people people are waking up and they're no longer pregnant. You know, that was something that was common in, in the fae legends as well. Um, and the idea of Bigfoot being a fae, we have something in England called the Yorkshire Giant, which is very reminiscent of a Bigfoot. And also up in, uh, in, uh, in Scotland, and I actually got to investigate in this area, um, we have the Gray Man, uh, which is a shape-shifting creature that can become vaporous like fog, or it can become a monstrous giant. Uh, so we have these elements as well, too. And, and Bigfoot is sometimes seen, especially by some uh, uh, Native American cultures in the Pacific Northwest, as a psychopompus, as something that comes to us to deliver the souls to the afterlife. And we're overlooking this, right? Because we're, there's no wood knocking going on, right? There's no howls or anything. But to think that some cultures are seeing Bigfoot as a uh, as 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 a transport of souls from one world to the other, the other world that they're talking about is the world of the Fey, the the unexplained world. And some uh, cultures also in the Pacific Northwest said. Uh, they claim that never eat any food that Bigfoot offers you, which is a a, a hallmark of of uh, Fey uh, beliefs in the, in the in the British Isles and elsewhere throughout Europe. So all these things start connecting uh, very very quickly, uh, and, and it is my personal opinion that when we talk about UFOs, even when we talk about UFOs and we talk about about lake monsters and, and werewolves and even vampires and all this other kind of stuff. There is a precedent in the world of the fairy, and it's been there for hundreds of years. And if you read enough between the lines and you allow yourself to dig deeper enough, uh, you also see that 
they are it's inter, they're intertwined with who we are as well too they're embroidered into our dna they're they're part of us um and even mermaids have been that from the time of paracelsus in the uh in the uh, renaissance have been seen as fairies as well too um but when we left the natural world behind when we were no longer hunter gatherers and we no longer looked at the stars to tell us when to plant then all those creatures that were so alive to us, that were so real to us, the things that we depended upon, now they lurk in the shadows, right? So what mm -hmm. once we used to rely on, now they become the other, they become creatures. Uh, and because you know we have electric light, everything that happens now outside in the darkness is things to be feared because we're civilized and everything that lies beyond those walls is the uncivilized. But I think there is that natural frequency out there, the, 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 the harmony of the universe that is still there, that we as human beings have elected to step out of that frequency, and now it seems so strange and foreign to us. And that's, that's why we call it paranormal. If we were to allow ourselves to step into that frequency, everything would be normal, right? But it's paranormal simply because we, it's not so much we don't understand it, it's that we have forgotten it. Right. I like that a mm. lot. Um, <clears throat> while you were talking about that, you mentioned that you had, you've been to Scotland and, and oh, yeah, researched absolutely. over there. Yeah. yeah. Can you yeah, speak so, to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So one of my favorite uh, characters, whenever we talk about the world of the Fae, is uh, this uh, Reverend Robert Kirk. Okay, he was a, uh, a Presbyterian. Uh, he lived in, uh, in Stirlingshire. Uh, it, my my, uh, my uh, one son's name Sterling because I love the place so much. So he lived there, and uh, you know he was out for a walk one day on his on his grounds, and uh, he uh, came across this site in the woods. It was a light in the side of a hill, as if the hill opened, as if a door opened up in, on the side of the hill. And I was thinking, you know, if this was nowadays and somebody was walking out of the woods and they see an, a light, like we saw a light, right? Um, that mm -hmm. could be a lot of different things, but this starts sounding like a UFO incident, right? Because this light opens up and he, he's curious, so he goes up and he peers inside and he sees figures in there. And one of the figures appears to be this very beautiful, very tall um, human-like character, which fits the Nordics perfectly, right? But he saw it as a fairy. And he um, started to visit this world more and more until one day he just went out for a walk and he simply vanished, right? Uh, many people think re relatively romantically that he died or I'm sorry, they think romantically that he went to the world of the fairy, but actually people think that he just died while he was out for a walk. Uh, but but I like to think that he went to the world of the fae. I, I do like to think that. But um, mm -hmm. as I was investigating over there, um, I got onto uh, a bus, and um, there was a guy sitting across from me, and he said, you know over there there's a fairy hill. And I said, I did not know that. And that was the hill that Robert Kirk disappeared on in, in 1692. Uh, so, yeah, so, uh, you know, the idea that even the locals over there still believe in fairies is awesome. Yeah. And uh, but a lot of was happening in the world in 1692. This was also the time of the Salem witch trials. And if we would shift over to Europe, 
Uh, if we go over to the mainland of Europe, this is also the time of the uh, witch and werewolf trials as well. So there was a lot of weird things going on, which leads me to believe that there are certain times in our history that seems very cyclical, that the strange and the unusual kind of are brought to light for a while. And then we as humans like to, you know, destroy it as best as we can. But I think that happens every now and then through history, too. Yeah, yeah, that the <clears throat> witch and werewolf trials remind me of uh, the, the the trials had gotten so out of hand, obviously, but they were mm. even trying animals at the time, like uh, pets and things. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, there was one, one case here uh, in uh, in um, uh, New England where um, a bull killed a boy. You know, and you know these are these are animals. You know, of course, that kind of stuff happened. So they put the bull on trial and they hanged the bull. I don't know how you would go about doing that, but yeah, absolutely. During the werewolf trials and the witch trials, you know, animals were being tried as familiars for witches. You know, pigs were being mm -hmm. tried. It was, it was it was a horrible, horrible. To, 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 to befall us but uh, hopefully yeah. hopefully we've got through that yeah I hope so yeah um so we are close to the end of the show and what I always ask my guests at the end of the show is to tell me a story <clears throat> so do you have just any story of the strange and weird that's your favorite it could be a personal story it doesn't have to be a personal story just any story that if I sat down and said, okay, Uncle Ron, let's go. Tell me a story. Right. What would you do? I was doing this ghost hunt where I, cause I was, I was a, a teacher for most of my life. I was doing this ghost mm -hmm. hunt with this school that said, Hey, Mr. Murphy, will you take us on a ghost hunt? And I said, sure. So I went to this place where there was a lot of different ghostly sightings and a lot of differently, different ghostly happenings and things like that. So um, I wanted to look really good for this because one of the teachers was single and I was single and I thought it would be a great time. You know, if I scare, you know, maybe she'll hold my hand or whatever. So I, I, I got myself a scarf. I looked apart. I, you know, I, I get the GQ magazine that the kids get every now and then. And I see how the people are dressing. <laughs> I thought, you know what? I might look good in that. So, and guess what? I did look good in it. But anyhow, uh, so, <laughs> back to our so we start going through a cemetery and I tell them the, the ghost stories there. And then I tell them about this witch that lived down there, right? There was a witch that lived in this particular area and she was the midwife and she was, you know, responsible for curing people and such. Um, but pretty soon things started going bad. So the townspeople say, we got to get this. We got it. We got to get to the source of what's going on. Obviously, God has turned his back, his back on us. So we got to take the witch out. So they decided they were going to do like some old fashioned, uh, you know, old country vigilante justice right here. So they burned the witch. And as the flames lapped about her, the legend was that she cried out. In 100 years from this day, I will send enough water to quench these flames. And sure enough, 100 years from that day, the Johnstown flood came in and wiped out that area. Right. So a witch story, it's a good story, right? So we start, you know, investigating and looking around. And pretty soon these orbs start appearing. And not only do they start appearing, but they start seeming to evaluate a couple of our people. One of the girls that I kind of had a liking for, they started to like really kind of spend a lot of attention with her to the point that 
in our cameras, we could see that her face was distorted by this orb. We could take multiple pictures and um, it was still there. So it, different, different lenses, different cameras, different angles. This orb was on her, covering her face. And uh, she said that she started to get a headache. So we thought it's time to get out of this place. So we started going. And as we are walking, we see these orbs again, jumping back and forth across the trail. And then the orbs just go out, just like all out. And then from the woods, we hear the, it sounds almost like a chorus of voices that gradually reach a crescendo. And they're female voices as well, too. So we run as quick as we can back to our car. Um, one of the teachers uh, said she feels this burning on her back. She pulls up her shirt and she has scratch marks on her back. Like everything that could happen happen on there so uh we go back and we said you know you want to talk about this so we went to the restaurant and uh we were all kind of quiet and and guess what guess what my scarf was missing the scarf that i bought so i would look gq hot for that girl was missing <laughs> so we're sitting there and nobody can really explain what happened you know skepticism at this point is is out the window because we know something that happened so we kind of, you know, without saying much, we kind of ate. Then we all went our separate ways. So I go back to my house and I open up the door and um, I see some light in my house. And uh, again, I'm going home all by myself. So I go outside, I take a couple deep breaths, and then I gather enough courage to kind of go back into my house. And in my kitchen, all four burners are on in my stove, and it's a gas stove, so it's flames, oh, right? My. Now, remember, we were looking for a witch that was supposedly burnt to death, right? So right. I, I turned, them, turned the stove off and everything like that, and I'm starting to get pretty scared. So, of course, I have to turn off, turn on every light in the house. You know, that's the way it works. Mm -hmm. And then I mm -hmm. thought, okay, this will be good. I'll sit down. I'll watch some television. So I take off my coat, and I hang it up on the coat rack, and my scarf is there. Oh, my. Yeah, true story. So I do not know how to explain that. Um, I, you know, I, I know that I had the scarf on me because there's pictures of it. And I know I only had one scarf because I bought it specifically for that. Um, but, you know, after all that was said and done, none of those people talked to each other this very day. All those people. Really? I was very close friends with the majority of them, and nobody talks to each other this day. That's wild. It was. It was. It was traumatic in a way. I mean, it was. Uh, again, yeah. uh, the we had the orbs. We had the voices. We had scratches. We had, you know, everything that possibly could go right on a ghost hunt. Uh, but I think that whenever you look for ghosts, you look for the paranormal. Sometimes, whenever you get um, uh, evidence, uh, that is sometimes a difficult pill to swallow. Mm hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Good. I can't believe that they don't talk just to even reminisce one time, not even reminisce, but just to kick ideas around of maybe I agree. what happened. But... I, agree. I agree. Well, that's what happens when you go into the skeptical and something happens that you can't explain. So I think there's a bit of blaming going on. I think that they blame me. I think that you did that to us kind of thing. You know what I mean? And hey, they have to go on a ghost tour. So, Right. There you go. Mm -hmm. They got what they asked for. They got what they asked for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the girl, the the girl that I went with that I want to look good for, she was so scared. She even held my hand. She doesn't talk to me anymore. Ah, uh, but you got uh, the handhold out of it. I did. Yeah, of course. Sorry, I got that. You know, we'll chalk that up. 
Yeah. Oh, oh man. Well, this has been I, great. Thank you I've so much. I've had great fun time with you tonight, Heather. This has been awesome. Um, can you tell our listeners or viewers, because um, our squad members get to view this video, um, where they can find you and how they can follow along with everything that you're doing? Sure. You can usually find me in my house. I don't go very many yeah. places. So yeah, so you can find me in my house. But if you want to find me like on social media, you can look up uh, Ronald Murphy or Ronald Murphy Jr., which is my author page, and you can like me there. Uh, you can you can contact me on the uh, the email. You know, all the kids are using the email nowadays. Uh, it's uh, Ronald L Murphy Jr. at yahoo.com. So Ronald L Murphy Jr. dot com. Uh, go ahead, or yeah, Ronald L. Murphy Jr. at Yahoo.com. Yeah, so go ahead, write to me, whatever you want to do. And of course, my books are available on Amazon. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> well, and also keep watching Small Town Monsters because, uh, spoiler alert, you're going to see more of Ron. I know. They're going to get sick of me. But I'm so glad that Tyler, because we'll have to get into this again, too. So Tyler, he's kind of he's kind of helming the the Earthlights project, right? And he's a great mm -hmm. guy. I think I, I kind of have a, a, a man crush on him. But I'm really looking forward <laughs> to working with him more. That's right. <laughs> I have a feeling, just based on your guys' interaction, that that is a, it's a reciprocal situation there so well I, I hope so i hope so everybody there is such good people though it, it does feel like family and and you know in a world like the paranormal that is so topsy-turvy and everybody kind of like looking out for themselves here i can actually say it feels good it feels genuine and i'm happy to be involved with you guys very much oh well thank you very much that means that means the world to us all right, guys, if you have any thoughts, suggestions, or just stories that you want to share, you can email me, Heather at smalltownmonsters.com. Um, and otherwise, uh, until next time. Presented by the Small Town Monsters Broadcasting Network. You can find out more about this and other network shows, as well as Small Town Monsters films, books, and Monster Fest 2 at smalltownmonsters.com.